This is the show that brings to the forefront newsmakers, entertainers, and those making a difference in our lives and in our world. Each week is a new adventure with topics ranging from the most serious and cutting edge to the most lighthearted and entertaining. This is Taking Care of Business with Richard Solomon. Greetings, everyone. Richard Solomon, Taking Care of Business, also known as Out of the Question. There isn't a week that doesn't go by where someone's asked me about bankruptcy. And what I always tell them in every single call is the person I go to is Todd Kushner. So we have him on the phone today because we're going to learn all about the basic dynamics of bankruptcy, how it works, the fundamentals, who is it right for, where does it work. So we're going to get right into it. Todd, Todd Kushner. Hey, how are you? Hey, great to have you. Kushnerlegal.com, C-U-S-H-N-E-R, legal.com, 914-600-5502. We'll give you that at the end of the show and during it. So, Todd, thank you for spending some time with us. My pleasure. All right. So, I'm, I'm always asked about bankruptcy. Let's talk, what, what does bankruptcy do and what does bankruptcy not do? Well, for starters, it's a great opportunity um, to get rid of your debt and start saving money, which is what the government wants you to do. Um, it eliminates debt uh, of all kinds. There's probably only one kind of debt that you can't get rid of, and those are federally guaranteed student loans. And much to everybody's surprise, um, even taxes are dischargeable in Chapter 7 and Chapter 13. That's news to me because so. I, thought, I thought you could not avoid the tax collector's uh, they would hunt you down no matter where you hit on the planet. <laughs> well, they'll hunt you down, but if your tax debt's older than three years, uh, there's no more hunting and it's dischargeable. Um, there's a caveat to that, and that is you had to have filed your tax return on time. So I tell everybody, make sure you file your tax return. I don't care if you pay the bill, but make sure you file your tax return because not doing so uh, could be conceived criminal, and we don't need that. Okay. Uh, so, all right. So, do you need to be absolutely penniless in order to be bankrupt or file for no. bankruptcy? Okay. And that's a popular misconception: is that people who go into bankruptcy have no money. In fact, the idea of it is to hang on to your money and to hang on to your assets and to get rid of your debt. If you qualify, great. Um, the qualification process is different between Chapter Seven and Chapter Thirteen. Um, and what, what are those differences? Over. What are those differences? Well, the Chapter 7 is what we call a liquidation. We take all your debt and we make it go away. And you have to be under a certain income limit to qualify for a Chapter 7. So generally speaking, uh, you know, uh, in Westchester, Nassau County, it runs about $60,000, $70,000. If your income is below that, you're pretty much automatically qualified to eliminate your debt through a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. Uh, for those folks who make more money, and we get plenty of doctors, lawyers, and all kinds of professional people who, for whatever reason, uh, are inundated with debt and they want to cut it down, there's the Chapter 13, which is called the Wage Earner Plan. And it's for people who are working, making regular income on a monthly basis. And what we do is we figure out how much money they make, we subtract their monthly expenses, and we're usually left with a number, whether it's $50 or $500, and that's what gets paid back on a monthly basis towards your unsecured creditors. Um, now, a lot of people think, well, aren't I just paying everything back if I'm doing that? The amazing thing about Chapter 13 is that a good percentage of the time, creditors never file what's called a proof of claim. And if a creditor wants to get paid in a bankruptcy, he's got to file one. They don't file it. They don't get paid. And I'm blown away at how often they don't file. They never file a proof of claim, and people walk away paying significantly less in a Chapter 13 than they ever thought they would. So let's talk about the proof of claim for a second. What is it, and how long does a creditor have to file it, and how do they file it? Um, well, it's filed electronically. The creditor has approximately uh, 90 to 120 days to get it in. And if they miss the bar date, at which the court sets, they're done. You could send it in a day late. It's invalid. 
So, Absolutely invalid, and that creditor is not getting paid, and there's nothing they can do about it, and they can't come back and cry or you know try to collect the money after the bankruptcy because that's a violation of federal law. So to quote the great Bob Eucher, uh, you missed the tag. <laughs> if you yeah, missed the tag, you missed the tag. That's exactly right. And I'm blown away how many creditors don't file. And you'd be surprised who doesn't file, including the IRS and New York State Tax Department. So um, it's really interesting, and, and people are, are quite pleased to find out who didn't file. And uh, quite often it ends up lowering the amount of money they have to pay to the chapter trustee, chapter 13 trustee who oversees this whole process for the debtors. All right, so let's walk through this process. Let's say I'm a prospective client. I'm in, I have credit card debt. I've got all kinds of things that are sort of overwhelming me. When I come to your office, what do I need to show you? Well, obviously, first thing is I need to see your pay stubs. Okay. For For you, your wife, if you're single, just you. If you're married, I need to see household income. And I need to determine whether or not you have disposable income. If you have disposable income after your expenses are paid, then you're probably stuck doing a Chapter 13. If you're in the negative at the end of the month, you're almost automatically doing a Chapter 7. So when folks come in to see me, I do this analysis right there while they're waiting, and I kind of figure out whether they're going 7, they're going 13, or maybe they're not doing it at all. Okay, so let me ask this question. I'm in a negative cash flow situation. I, I go bankrupt. But at the other side of the bankruptcy, I'm still going to be in a negative cash flow because of whatever. My cost of living is too high. My taxes are too high. My health care is too high. I don't make enough money. How, how is that corrected in bankruptcy? And then what do people do so that they're not in the same position uh, all over again? Well, you know... Yeah, health insurance and things like that, we don't really consider that that those are expenses. Um, so if somebody's, uh, you know, in the negative, um, you got to realize that's negative before any debt payment on any credit card or any loan or any payday loan. So most people find out that, uh, you know, they benefit by getting rid of this debt and having extra capital when it's over. All right. Now, once you go bankrupt in any kind, what is the time limitation before you're allowed to actually go back into bankruptcy again? If um, you, if it's you eight are. years. Okay. Okay, between bankruptcies. It used to be seven. They moved it up to eight. Um, and that's between Chapter 7-1 and Chapter 7-2. But you could still do a Chapter 13 after you did a Chapter 7, uh, and we call that a Chapter 20. <laughs> and what it does <laughs> that's your that's your does. special name right yeah, yeah chapter 20 what it does is it eliminates the unsecured debt and then you go back in without all this debt and you look better to the bank and you try to get a better deal on your uh primary mortgage in the chapter 13 now here's another really cool thing about chapter 13 if you have a mortgage on your house and that mortgage is greater than the value, the appraised value of your house. All right, so you're underwater. You're underwater. You're underwater, okay. You're underwater. You can get rid of your second mortgage and just walk away from it in the Chapter 13, which a lot of people want to take advantage of. I did not know that. That's unbelievable. Yeah. It's called a pond motion. And if it's underwater, it's underwater, and that's it. Second mortgage, Goodbye. And we love that, and our, our clients love that, and the banks hate that. But you know what? They're making money. So that's that's fascinating. So, so you could wipe out the entire the entire second mortgage. Second mortgage, as long um, as it's completely underwater. Wow! And who yeah. determines that? Like a independent appraisal? Well, it's, a, it's a function of the appraisal. All right. so, so you know, if you you got a five hundred and fifty thousand dollar mortgage. And your house appraises for five hundred, and you got another second for a hundred. That second is gone. This, Absolutely gone. The the light bulb has just gone off, and I may need to talk to you offline about a couple <laughs> clients. <laughs> I'm like I'm like all of a sudden I'm like like you know whoop whoop whoop. 
So, it's, listen, bankruptcy is a great opportunity for folks, and there's a lot of misinformation um, about it, and you hear all these scary stories, and these are scary stories that are created by uh, unsecured creditors and unsecured creditor companies who would love to scare people out of going into bankruptcy. And that's why we have this cottage industry of debt consolidation companies that fly by night half the time and disappear half the time, take your money, never pay your creditor. It's a waste of time, energy, and money. And the bankruptcy is a whole lot uh, quicker, easier, cheaper. Uh, it's overseen by a judge. You're not going to get harmed. Um, and you're going to get your credit back a whole lot faster than you think. Um, here's another thing that people really don't um, don't know or they don't realize. But if you go into a Chapter 7 bankruptcy with a 600 credit score, you're walking out of that Chapter 7 bankruptcy with a credit score of probably 680 or more. And, and, and when I tell people this, uh, my mind um, is blown. Say, how could this? How could this be? How <laughs> my, could this be? And my I'm tell my you mind is blown. Be. Okay, the, uh, it's the truth. It's the truth. And I'm going to tell you how it can be. Your credit score is not a function of just how you pay your debt, but how much debt you have relative to your income. So if you walk into a Chapter Seven bankruptcy and you got sixty, seventy, eighty, a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt and you wipe it out, your score's blown up 100 points. And we see it every day, and the credit reports that we pull for our clients show exactly how much that credit score is going to go up as a function of the bankruptcy. So I'm looking for a downside, and I've been looking for a downside for 20 years, and I haven't found it yet. Wow, that's that. This is my. That, this is a great radio show because the the information <laughs> I'm learning, <laughs> you know, is just unbelievable. And you know, I, I had. Well, listen, I like to bring a little good news after the turkey slaughter of 2018. <laughs> so, well, all I can say is this: you know, I, I've been a part of certain kinds of bankruptcies because I'm a commercial litigator. And of course, you know, in various litigations, you'll see somebody all of a sudden file a petition in bankruptcy for protection and somehow the litigation may move from the the state court into the federal court and, and then I'll have to engage bankruptcy counsel and you kind of watch how that runs. But uh, this is, wow, this is just very interesting information. So for the people who are listening, could you explain a little bit of the dynamics of litigation? What we always see on television, you know, if it's a criminal case, there's the prosecution and there's the defense and, of course, there's the court. Yep. And in yep. civil cases, there's always, you know, the plaintiffs, the defendants, sometimes juries, sometimes not, and the mm -hmm. court. Mm -hmm. What's the dynamic in bankruptcy court? Who are the players? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a different dynamic between Chapter 7 and Chapter 13. So let's talk about a Chapter 7. Okay. You never see a judge if you're in a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. You see a Chapter 7 trustee who's a lawyer with a good gig, and his job is to step into the shoes of the creditors and ask you questions about your petition, which is what I draft that explains your economic situation. And that meeting that you have with this trustee lasts three to five minutes tops. You go home, and 60 days later, you get a discharge notice. A Chapter 13 bankruptcy is a little more complicated. Uh, you're meeting a trustee again, a Chapter 13 trustee, who reviews your petition and your plan, but you're also coming back a month later to meet the judge. And the judge, you don't really do much talking at that hearing, um, but you need to appear and... Uh, judge wants to know whether or not you have a domestic support obligation um, because you can't get out of that. That's the other thing you can't get out of is a domestic support obligation, which is a good thing. We're not looking to hurt children here. We're just looking to get rid of debt. Um, so basically, people who do a Chapter 13 have two appearances to make. They're relatively easy. Um, then they go home, and if there's loss mitigation, which is the attempt to get you a better deal on your first mortgage, um, there's a lot of back and forth in court, but the debtor never has to show up. They stay home. And we go to court and fight it out with the banks. Okay, so it, you, the, the bankruptcy is all federal court. You only go to federal court. There's no only other... go to federal court. All right. In the, in the law that I practice, 
there's a lot of paperwork exchange. There's all kinds of things. Sometimes there's experts. There's witness lists. There's uh, the exchange of the information to support either the, the case in chief or the defense. Does any of that exist in the world of bankruptcy? Yeah. Um, and it exists in the form of a petition, which is approximately 50 to 60 pages. And what it is, it's a written snapshot of that individual's economics as they stand on the date of filing. Um, so in addition to the petition, um, a debtor would have to supply 60 days of pay stubs, two years of tax returns, and uh, any proof of assets that they may have in the form of a car. They want to see a car lease in the form of a mortgage. They want to see a mortgage statement. Um, if you have stocks and bonds and mutual funds, those things, and they're all disclosed to the trustee. All right, so you've got to put all your cards on the table. What do you, you better do- throw your cards on the table because you don't want to uh, be caught not doing that. The penalties are huge, and uh, I, I haven't seen anybody do it yet, but I want everybody, you better lay all your cards on the table. All right, so... We only have like a minute left in this segment because this is very fast radio because this is exciting information. Mm. But what do you do when you're a client? Maybe you haven't paid it, your, your filed your tax in the last couple of years because you were just drowning in debt and misery and all kinds of other stuff. Um, those clients, and we see a lot of them, uh, people who are backed up tax-wise, we recommend the Chapter 13 bankruptcy because it gives them 60 months to pay back the debt whereas the IRS's best deal is the 24-month deal. So the IRS is telling you you got 24 months, usually 12 months, but sometimes 24 months to pay it back. In this particular case, I get to, I don't want to say shove it down the IRS's throat, but we shove it down the IRS's throat over 60 months. So it's a much smaller payment, and there's very little that they can say about it. It's code, it's statutory, and it's uh, what it is. All right, so hold it right there. This is Richard Solomon. I am with Todd Kushner, C-U-S-H-N-E-R, legal, KushnerLegal.com, 914-600-5502. Keep it locked in. We'll be right back. This is really, really great information. We'll be right back. Hi, this is the great Tordini. You're listening to Richard Solomon on 88.1 FM WCWP. All right, welcome back, everybody. Richard Solomon here with attorney Todd Kushner, C-U-S-H-N-E-R, KushnerLegal.com, 914-600-5502. He is a bankruptcy attorney, and uh, we're continuing our conversation, asking all the, the, the fundamental dynamic questions about bankruptcy. So in part one, we talked about Chapter 7, Chapter 13, and, and what he calls Chapter 20. Uh, in the world of law that I practice, I tend to see commercial bankruptcy, can we talk a little bit about the difference between Absolutely. the two? And Absolutely. Do people... The, uh, chapter 7 and Chapter 13 are typically individual bankruptcies, meaning husband and wife, individual, single person, um, whereas your Chapter 11, it tends to be a business that's running into trouble. And um, occasionally we'll see an individual... Chapter 11, where somebody's over the debt limit of Chapter 13. So in Chapter 13, you're allowed a secure debt limit of a million ninety. So if your house, if you owe a million two on your house, you're automatically out of the box for a Chapter 13, and you're stuck doing a Chapter 11. When I say stuck, you don't really have a choice. but that doesn't mean it's a bad thing because you get the same opportunity uh, to eliminate debt, to reduce your mortgage payment, to strip off second mortgages that you would get in a Chapter 13. Um, but most of the time, we see Chapter 11s for small businesses who are hurting, and today there's a lot of them. All right, so are, are there instances where someone will file simultaneously or in a coordinated fashion a personal bankruptcy and then do the same with their business? Um, well, you, what happens is a good percentage of the time, uh, the business bankruptcy ends up with a secondary personal bankruptcy 
because while we may have eliminated debt for a business, if a business owner signed um, personally for a lease, for example, or for merchandise, or he owes a vendor and he signed personally to the vendor, um, the only way to effectively eliminate that for the individual is to file an individual after the business bankruptcy case if the business bankruptcy case um, didn't work out or we weren't able to restructure it in that Chapter 11. All right, so one of the questions that I, I'm often asked is, if, if let's say there's litigation going on or there are people being chased or harassed, uh, when does the cessation of hostilities against the debtor occur? In other words, uh, what, it's, what? it's immediate. Okay. It's immediate. How, so how does, you, how does that sued. work? How does that oh, let's work? Just say, yeah. Let's just say you're being sued by Citibank uh, in state court. The second you file the bankruptcy case electronically, that case is stayed. And it's what we call, in the bankruptcy world, the automatic stay of protection. Can't get sued. They can't call you. They can't garnish you. They can't freeze your account. They can't do anything to you. You're effectively off limits in a magical bankruptcy bubble where nobody can touch you. And we argue these issues in front of a bankruptcy judge, a federal judge, and a federal court. Shields, Mr. Scott. <laughs> right? Is that right? Exactly. All right. So, so, so let's say I'm in the middle of a jury trial. It's been on for nine weeks. And if, if while this is going on, someone files a bankruptcy, that, it's over. It's over. People got to get up and leave and pay their parking ticket and go home. Yep. Okay. A lot of state judges don't get it. And, and they say, oh, no, no, this case is going on. And I point them to uh, one of our federal judges who'll send a letter out and basically say, your case is over or it stayed uh, until the completion of the bankruptcy, which usually resolves the issue anyway, one way or the other. So let's talk about business bankruptcy. What mm -hmm. is so a client will come in and they'll say, I, I I've got all kinds of debt, I've got cash flow issues, I can't collect, you know, it's the squeeze. I can't collect from my clients, and as a result, I really can't pay my vendors. So right. my vendor bills have sixteen percent interest or who knows what, or I took out lines of credit. So that's mm -hmm. piling up on one end. So let's say on the right side is all this. Uh, liability just keeps accruing and, and it's killing me. And then the lifeblood of my business, the cash flow, this one stiffed me, that one, this one went bankrupt on me, this one uh, retired, another guy died, left me, you know, whatever. So now I don't have the ability to, you know, to dynamically float the business. There's not enough money mm -hmm. coming in. And of course, uh, your lease is a fixed expense. Uh, your health care, your lights, your utilities, you know, all that stuff is fixed. And what what does that do? Uh, well, and what can you discharge and can you get out of your, your business lease and move? How does all this work? First thing we do is we take a look at all the creditors and we categorize them. Whether or not they are a secure debt, which is your lease, your mortgage payment, um, it could be uh, 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 equipment that you're leasing for your business. Whether that debt is, uh, whether you have secured debt, priority debt, which are debts that have to be paid in the bankruptcy. For example, 941 tax, sales tax, other taxes. Um, those are priority debts. And then everything else gets lumped into what we call unsecured, non-priority debt. Those are the bulk of most people's debt, uh, and those are the bulk of the creditors. And we make a deal with your secured creditor. At least we try to make a deal with your secured creditor to get you a better rate and term, a uh, longer payout on your secured issues. We pay your priority debt in full, and the unsecured creditors could be getting a nickel on a dollar. Let's see, so so the secret to the world is to be a secured creditor. If you can be, I, yeah. so, so for the people out now, there, obviously, yeah, there are you know there are exceptions to that rule. 
Um, if you incur a debt within 90 days of filing, that becomes a priority debt. So uh, if you think you're going to go and buy a Rolex watch 90 <laughs> days before you file your bankruptcy, you're in for a big surprise. Right. So the answer is wait 91 days. <laughs> <laughs> so, so even though I just made a joke. Now, let's say somebody was, was savage and they waited 91 days. Can the court undo that because they said, oh, you were just being cute? Well, you know what? Uh, the court might not realize that, but the creditor is going to realize that. And if the creditor is smart, which is very rare, they're going to file an objection to the discharge of that particular debt because it was a luxury item that was purchased within a period of time that uh, just won't fly. Um, I've seen those actions brought, and I tell people, hey, listen, you know, you bought what you bought right before you had the bankruptcy. You got to pay it back or you got to give it back. And sometimes we give it back. Okay. So for the people out there, what is a secured debt? What does that actually mean? A secured debt is a debt that um, has some kind of writing attached to it, whether it's a UCC filing, whether it's a mortgage and a note. And it's, if you don't pay, that creditor has the right to come and take that thing away, whether it's your car, your house, your boat, your commercial refrigerator. That's a secured debt. Right. So in other words, it's backed by collateral. It's backed by collateral. All right. I'll tell you an interesting story. Uh, many, many years ago, a, uh, a law firm was going bankrupt. And the law firm that I worked for said, I'll go over there and see what they're selling. You know, <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll get some cheap chairs and stuff like that or desks or whatever. So they sent me over. I was, I was a brand new associate. And uh, a, a famous copy company uh, ran their people over and with tape that said property of, you know, name of the companies, you know, Acme, mm. <laughs> you know, property of Acme Industries. Because apparently that must have been a secured asset that was not subject to the bankruptcy auction that was taking place. I thought that was very interesting. That's correct. Yeah. And that's because they probably filed what's called a UCC-1, Uniform Commercial Code 1. And that's the, how do I put it, the commercial person's equivalent to a mortgage. Got it. Securitizes that particular item. So... In the world of business debt and and bankruptcy, what are the misconceptions that people have as business owners about what they can and cannot do that you come across? What do you see? In business bankruptcies, a lot of people come in thinking they're going to be able to liquidate all their debt down to zero, and it's not the case. Um, in a 13 or a 7, where we liquidate debt, or rather in a 7 where we liquidate debt, or a 13 where we put a plan together to pay off debt. Um, in a Chapter 11 bankruptcy, uh, the creditors get to vote on whether or not the plan is going to work. So um, whereas the other bankruptcies, they have no choice. The creditors have no say. Creditors have a lot of say in a Chapter 11 business bankruptcy as to whether or not they're going to vote for the plan. So when we structure our plans for businesses, um, we take that into account and say, hey, is this something somebody's going to vote for? Is a creditor going to say, yeah, we understand the situation that this business is in, and we're willing to take 15 cents on the dollar, am I going to vote yes? And I need a certain number of votes to be able to make that plan work. Whereas in a Chapter 13, I don't need anybody's vote. I'm putting a plan forward, and that's the way it is. It's going to go that way. Now, in the world of commercial bankruptcy, since we're on the topic, can you be forced into involuntary bankruptcy? You could always be forced into a bankruptcy. Either personal uh, or commercial? Com personal or commercial. It happens more often in commercial situations where there are just so many vendors that are owed so much money, they say, the hell with it, we're going to put this guy into bankruptcy and liquidate his assets. So how, does um, this, how, so how does this work in the real world? So let's say you and I are soda makers or something like that, and the, mm -hmm. the syrup guy owes us a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, it usually, you know, it usually happens in a business where there's a hell of a lot of stock. Um, I mean, it, it, in merchandise, not, okay. not inventory, inventory. You know, over the, yeah, inventory yeah. Okay. that kind of stock. Um, and they have something to sell at an auction because ultimately it's going to auction. Um, 
that's how that works. And that's why they want to put you into an involuntary bankruptcy. They're very difficult to get out of. And uh, most of the time, uh, involuntary bankruptcy ends up in the closing of a business. How many creditors do you need to gang up to, you know, do you need one? How many do you need to, to force an involuntary it's a, bankruptcy? It's a percentage of the debt. It's a percentage oh, of the debt. So uh, if one guy has the majority of the debt, then they call the shot? Then or you got a problem. Then you got a problem. You got to be able to make that debtor. You got to make that debtor happy. <laughs> Pardon me. So I, I thought there was a rule that I mean, you got to like, make that creditor happy. That it was like three unrelated creditors or something like that? Uh, no. That's a, that, that must be an old rule then. Yeah. Or something like that. Um, it's, a, it's a percentage of the total amount of debt. And if somebody has a major share, you want to have to make a deal with them. There's something called, a, uh, without getting into too much detail, the absolute priority rule. Okay. <laughs> and we try to avoid it, and I'm, I don't think we want to get into it here, but it, it, it poses problems in uh, Chapter 11 bankruptcies for individuals All right. in or businesses. In these business bankruptcies, could you talk about the role of the creditors committee and the role of the trustee? Okay. Um, there is no trustee, as we know it, appointed. However, the, the, the United States Department of Justice has an office called uh, the Office of the United States Trustee, whose job it is to oversee bankruptcies. And they will keep an eye on a Chapter 11 bankruptcy, make sure that the debtor is doing what the debtor is supposed to do. And in some cases, where we're talking multiple millions of dollars, form a creditor's committee, okay? And that creditor's committee sort of uh, assists the bankruptcy attorney in coming up with a plan that's going to work. So you go back and forth with your committee and you discuss the ins and outs of this particular case, and they give you a pretty good idea of what they're willing to do and what they're not willing to do. And um, it makes it a little easier to put a plan together, but sometimes it makes it a little more difficult for the debtor. What What are some of the surprising pieces of information for business owners about bankruptcy other than not liquidating all your debt? Is it expensive? Is it long and drawn out? It's, it's usually long and drawn out, and the thing that most people hate about it, and uh, it's just the reality of Chapter 11, and it's only for Chapter 11, um, is the debtor in possession account. And what that means is your checking account, as you know it, for your business is terminated, and you get to open up what we call a debtor in possession account, which says right on the check, ABC Corporation, debtor in possession, bankruptcy case number 18-12345. And people don't like that because it puts the whole world on notice that you're in bankruptcy. Um, but that's part of the game. And the other thing that people don't really uh, like but is also part of Chapter 11 and has nothing to do with 7s and 13s is the operating report, which is a 12-page document that must be filed with the Office of the United States Trustee every single month showing all the income in and all the income out and wow. how it was spent right. to the penny. We only have a and minute in this segment, believe it or not, because this is extremely well, fast radio. All right. Can a non-profit or not-for-profit business actually file for bankruptcy? Yes. All right. Uh, in never did one, never saw one, but they can. All right. All right. Uh, when we come back, could we talk a little bit about foreclosure defense? And depends what's for lunch. What's that? <laughs> it depends on what's for lunch. Okay. <laughs> something good. <laughs> All right. Then yes. The, the answer will be something good. All right. So when we come back, we're going to continue our very informative discussion with attorney Todd Kushner. By the way, where's your office? We're at 399 Knollwood Road in White Plains, New York. Exit 4 off of 287, you can't miss a big, giant red building. All right. And you practice in what courts around the tri-state area here? Southern District Federal Court, Eastern District Federal Court, and state courts, uh, Nassau, Suffolk, Westchester, Rockland, 
the Bronx in New York City. Oh, there you go. All right, 914-600-5502. Kushner Legal with a C. C-U-S-H-N-E-R legal.com. We will be right back. Hi, this is Anastasia Zeltos from Athens, Greece, and we listen to Richard Solomon on our computers, and we love it. All right, Richard Solomon on our radio journey through bankruptcy. Now, this is flying fast, so that's because we have attorney Todd Kushner with us today, and, and he's just a wealth of information, and I, I thank you again for being with us. My pleasure. All right, so we promised everybody before the last break that we would talk about foreclosure defense. So let's, let's talk about uh, foreclosure defense first within a bankruptcy, and then let's talk about it outside of bankruptcy. So, okay. Do do you use uh, bankruptcy as a tool uh, when people are facing mortgage foreclosure? Absolutely. And up until recently, we had a really great thing called the HAMP program, which is helping uh, homeowners affordability modification program. And we do what's called loss mitigation in the hopes of getting folks a loan modification, um, and unfortunately, we haven't seen uh, as many or as good uh, a loan modification as we had back a few years ago before they terminated the HAMP program when we were seeing people who were a year or two behind in their mortgages um, getting those amounts forgiven and getting put into 40-year mortgages at 3%. We're not really seeing that anymore, but we're still getting loan modifications, and we're still helping homeowners stay in their home and uh, fighting the banks every day. What, what are the misconceptions that people have about foreclosure defense? Well, I, I think a lot of people think, based on what they heard here on the radio um, and on TV and in the newspaper, that they're guaranteed to get a loan modification. Um, and the problem that we see is there are a lot of folks who are given mortgages that they couldn't afford when they got them, and they certainly can't afford them now. And if you're making $62,000 a year, for example, um, you can't afford a $450,000 mortgage. So no matter what wiggle room there is, and no matter how much I jump up and down and scream and yell and kick in a courtroom, there's not going to be a loan modification in a scenario like that. Okay, but it is an effective tool. We use it on a regular basis, and if somebody's got substantial income, reasonable income, and a reasonable mortgage, they're pretty much guaranteed to get a loan modification, which is going to be better uh, than the mortgage that they have right now based on length of term of the mortgage uh, and interest rate. What, what pushes people into a foreclosure situation? What are the- um, well, listen, that could be really anything, and... Uh, the unfortunate thing that that we tend to see is um, loss of income based on the economy. A lot of people have lost their jobs. Um, another factor is divorce, which is high in our area. And most divorces, um, they say close to 75 to 80 percent of all divorces end up in one, one party or another having a bankruptcy. Oh, wow. And then there's, you know, long-term illnesses could put somebody back a year behind on their mortgage, and they start working again, and they're making money again, and they want to try to save their home and uh, keep their families intact. And uh, that's what we do in bankruptcy. Now, one scenario I came across and something I read, uh, the homeowner had, I guess, certain fixed costs with a certain fixed income, but the local tax authorities just kept on cranking up the taxes, and that, that put them in a negative cash flow situation. How do you deal with something like that? Um, unfortunately, there's not much you can do with something like that. Um, I've seen it quite often where the taxes have doubled and tripled in a matter of 10 years, and uh, that it's a, it's a non-negotiable position unless you hire an attorney who does what we call a tax certiorari and tries to lower your taxes. So taxes are always problematic in any of these scenarios. All right, so if you're facing foreclosure, is bankruptcy your first choice 
or is probably it, not, um, or is it just a choice? It's it's a choice. Yeah. Um, right, maybe options a better word. Yeah, yeah I, it's 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 a more powerful choice than a state um, run program. But there is a state run program, and uh, some people do find success um, with foreclosure defense in the state court. Um, the difference is in state court you're in front of a mediator as opposed to being in federal court when you're in front of a federal judge. And in the case of White Plains of Poughkeepsie, those two judges pretty much wrote the HAMP program. So they're very aggressive in getting banks to cooperate, whereas in state court, there's less, of a, there's less teeth in the game, and banks are more willing to try to pull nonsense that they wouldn't get away with in bankruptcy court. But... A lot of people don't, you know, uh, fear the bankruptcy word, and they fear bankruptcy court, and they want to start off in state court. So we're happy to do foreclosure defense in state court, and quite often we're successful. And if we're not successful, we get a second bite at the apple in the bankruptcy court. Okay. Um, what, are the, what are the traps that people have to worry about in, in some of these foreclosure things? Are there some kind of things that are a little bit more treacherous? Is it that... The, the presumptions that your house will increase in value one day? Uh, is there certain other presumptions that... I, I, I think the best answer to that question is it varies from lender to lender. And there are some lenders who are out there who are aggressively trying to keep people in their homes, and they're really reaching um, and giving people great deals. And there are some banks that just could care less about your family situation and they want to take your property back and warehouse it and get rid of it and get you out. And that's a problem. And they do it in a lot of nefarious ways. And we've caught them um, doing it in nefarious ways. And uh, one of those ways is representing a bank and not actually having the physical mortgage. So we always make sure that uh, a lender who's trying to foreclose proves to us that they have the actual note and mortgage in hand, because without it, um, it's pretty much useless. Well, at least without the note. And uh, we look at it this way. Uh, most people already know that when they go and buy a house, there's a note and there's a mortgage. And I look at it as a cow. And the mortgage is the tail, and the note is the actual physical cow. So if you have a mortgage with no note, you have a tail, okay? <laughs> I mean, you, you have a tail, and there's nothing left. There's nothing to foreclose on. So they got to have the mortgage, excuse me, they got to have the note to be able to effectively foreclose. And you'd be amazed at how many banks don't have it. Well, is that because mortgages are sold and resold and assigned? and? Oh, they're sold and resold and, and hypothecated in every different way. And, and even even in a bankruptcy, We've had cases where the mortgage changed three or four times in, in the short period of time that we've been trying to do a loan modification. They just flip it and flip it and flip it. And a lot of times they flip it into trusts that are already closed, and you know that it's just not legit. And we bring it to the court's attention, and they got a lot of problems. And then all of a sudden, here comes my loan modification. I, because they don't want to answer to that. <laughs> So is this is this like that robo signing? What what is robo signing? Robo signing is a process that a lot of banks uh, I, I'd like to say used to do. I hope that it's <laughs> stopped, but I, I I can't tell you for sure. Where instead of looking to make sure that all the endorsements um, and all the transfers from bank to bank to bank are in order, somebody just signs and stamps it and says endorsed, 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 and nobody really looks to see if it really was. It's illegal. Uh, Wells Fargo got caught doing it. They had a huge fine. At least to me, it was a huge fine. To them, it was probably um, a rather light kick in the rear end. But uh, they do that, and that's what robo-signing is, and it's completely illegal. Now, how does the statute of limitations work in in foreclosure? I've heard stories where... People haven't paid their mortgage in, you know, five years, ten years, you know, whatever. Um, well, you know what? That's a great question. I love that question. Um, 
we were very active doing quiet, quiet title actions, which basically uh, the statute of limitations in the state of New York is six years. So once they declare your mortgage in default, if they don't proceed to foreclose um, within a six-year period, they precluded themselves from being able to do it. And you could bring what's called a quiet title action, and um, I hate to say it, but get your house for free. Unfortunately, they just passed uh, a ruling about two months ago in New York. I think it was a bad decision uh, and a bad case, and I think ultimately it's going to go back the other way. But it sort of put the kibosh on the six-year statute of limitations, um, and the judge basically said that a letter of intent to accelerate was not an acceleration and I don't see how they did that, but they did it. And, uh, for that reason, a lot of people are out of luck when it comes to these uh, quiet title actions. Right, but here's, here's, here's my legal brain working. If, if I, you know, breach of contract. So if I just stop paying, whether there's a notice or not, it, let's, say, let's say for some reason I stop paying and I just don't pay for six years and one month. And then somebody may, maybe wakes up or whatever. Uh, why would uh, that the letter of intent matter? The letter of intent is is the line of demarcation, so to speak, in the foreclosure action. Nothing happens until you get a letter of intent to foreclose. And that used to be the starting point of when we start the statute of limitations. But now that the new ruling came out, it's actually the day they start the foreclosure. So this, the, the six-year rule pretty much went out the window. All right, so if they start the foreclosure, but I didn't pay for seven years, are they barred by the statute of limitations under these new rules? Just not paying? No. Why not? Because this is antithetical. Because that rule. Yeah. Wow. Yet, yeah. in a regular contract between you and me, uh, right. I hired you to paint my house. Right. And then. And, I, and you waited six years or more to sue me, you can't sue me. Yeah. But in a foreclosure case, it's different. Oh. Harsh. So it's kind of a bad, bad ruling. Because everything else is still a six year rule. Right. So, so the, the, was this because of a disdain for people to get free houses? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. I think it was just a bad decision by a judge that really wasn't uh, on top of it. Well, or someone who and had I a disdain for, <laughs> for. And I think somebody's going to bring it to the appellate division and see if they can get it overturned because it was just a bad, bad decision. So, uh, how. Okay, so I, I need to talk to you about mortgage foreclosure defense. What, what do I need to bring with me? Um, and is it like a bankruptcy or is it kind of just different? It's different. And what we do is um, when people are in foreclosure, the first thing that comes is a summons and complaint in foreclosure. And rather than being a five-page document, it tends to be a 120-page document. Yeah, I've seen them. They're, 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 they're gigantic, enormous. Yeah. They're enormous, big packages. And in that package is the note, the mortgage, and any transfer document that took place moving that from bank A to bank B to bank C to trust A to trust B. And it all has to be intact, and it all has to be there, including any allonges to the note. And the first thing we do is go through that package and make sure that when the foreclosure says Deutsche Bank against John Doe, that Deutsche Bank has a right to be there. Whether it's Deutsche Bank or Wells Fargo or anybody else, we want to make sure that they have that right to be there. And that's the answer to that question is in the transfer documents that go through however many times they transfer the loan. It's just like when people buy title insurance, they want to know they're the rightful owner of the home. So you get title insurance, and it tells you everybody who's ever had a house since day one. And if they're missing a period of time, we call that a gap in title. Well, there's a gap in the securitization of this note. Um, if they can't account for what happened between Bank A and Bank C, what happened to Bank B? So these are the things we look for in uh, defending foreclosure actions in the state of New York. How long does the foreclosure process take? I've seen it drag on. I've seen some cases just 
I'll, I won't mention the county, but they're in, they're south of you, where I've okay. heard you know six, seven years, just you know. Con- well, I can tell you, I could give you an exact number, almost an exact number in Westchester County. It's nine hundred and eighty-eight days. It's about so three years. It's a little less than three years, yeah. and that's assuming that you don't do anything. That's a, that's a, that's a non-defended foreclosure. That's called breathing. So, just breathing. That's just breathing. That's just saying, Fog the right, mirror. Do what they got to do. <laughs> Go ahead and do what you got to do, and I'm not going to fight you. If you fight, it goes on a whole, whole lot longer than that. Because I've seen and heard from people uh, their cases in different counties around here. Some are a little faster than others, but generally yep. they, it's really slow. You know, yeah, you, it's very slow, and that's a good thing for a lot of people because. Um, I get a lot of people who come in and they say, you know what, I'm in foreclosure, I realize I'm behind, I'm not making the money that I used to make, but i got to get my kid through high school next year. Got it. So one of the things we do is we'll, you know, fight it up until a certain point and then say, okay, here's your house. And then can you do something called a a deed in lieu of foreclosure? You could do a deed in lieu of foreclosure. And what is that uh, for? Basically, it, 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 it skips the torture of the foreclosure process. And a lot of times the banks are willing to give you some cash for keys. If you agree to do it, you say, okay, I'll be out by the end of December. You, you, you leave by the end of December. It's now October 1st. We'll give you till December 30th. Leave December 30th. Leave it broom clean. We'll give you $15,000 or $10,000. So, and that's how the deed, deed in lieu of uh, foreclosure works. Um, if, if let's I say, wanna, go ahead, go ahead. I want to just get back to one thing that we really didn't talk about in bankruptcy. Bankruptcy is the only place for those folks who just don't want the house anymore, or they've had it and they know they can't afford it, and they want to surrender it, but they don't want to have a tax ramification. The only place to surrender real property without a tax ramification is in a bankruptcy court where you could surrender in full satisfaction of all debts owed. So basically you go, here's the keys, thank you so much, goodbye. Wow. Now that's fascinating. That's a powerful, powerful thing. Um, because if they do foreclose and it's not the original mortgage uh, or what we call purchase money mortgage, the banks have a right to come after you for the deficiency amount. So. If your house, you owe the bank 600 and you end up going to the auction block for 450 somebody's looking at a deficiency amount of $150,000. Now, they're not going to come after you for the money, but they are going to give you a 1099, and you are going to pay the tax on that 150000 which is probably, for most people, somewhere around 50000 A lot of dough. A lot of money. A lot right. of dough. All right, we we're out of time. Could you could you believe that we're out of time? Can I come back tomorrow. Oh, you're you're welcome back anytime. All right, Richard Solomon, nine one four six hundred five five zero two. We have to leave it there. Kushnerlegal.com. You've been an incredible guest. We'll see Thanks everybody. Thanks for having me. I had a really great time. All right, you're coming back. You're totally coming All right, back. Man. See you. See everybody good. next week.